Welcome back to the program. Well, talk of sex is all around us. The fact is that the origins of our reproductive lives are still a mystery. And while 50 years ago, Masters and Johnson set out to try and find the science of sex, much has transpired since in our understanding of science and of evolutionary biology. In his new book, How We Do It, Field Museum of Natural History curator Robert Martin draws on 40 years of research in biological anthropology to locate the roots of everything from our sex cells to the way we care for newborns. He examines the procreative history of humans as well as that of our primate kin. Robert Martin is a curator of biological anthropology at the Field Museum of Natural History. He studied zoology at Oxford University. His postdoctoral research in France led to his first academic appointment in anthropology at University College London. He was also a senior research fellow at the Zoological Society of London and a visiting professor at Yale University. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Martin here to talk about his new book, How We Do It, The Evolution and Future of Human Reproduction. Robert Martin, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Jeff. Delight to have you here. Why is this an area that, that really up until recently, and really your work being a large part of that, that we have really focused so little on, that we really have such a, a minimal understanding of how some of these aspects of, of our lives work? It's really quite amazing when you think of it, because uh, for some time now, the accepted wisdom has been that a woman ovulates, that is, produces an egg in the middle of her menstrual cycle, and that is the fertile window, the uh, period of a few days around mid-cycle, when the egg erupts from the ovary. But uh, right up until 1930, people believed that menstruation was the fertile time of the cycle. And uh, so women were being told that they should avoid uh, menstruation and, and they, that it was perfectly safe to uh, have curators in the middle of the cycle, which now we believe to be the most fertile time. In fact, that's just one of many things that we've had misconceptions about for so long. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, in fact, in my book, um, I have made a revolutionary new suggestion. I, I was rather expecting to be uh, heavily criticized by the medical community, but it hasn't happened yet. But uh, the thing is, as I say, the standard wisdom now is that a woman uh, ovulates in the middle of her cycle and that that is the fertile time, the few days around that time of ovulation. But... Uh, I bring together evidence from uh, different sources. I mean, this is the advantage of having done this for 40 years. I've been uh, collecting stuff the way uh, squirrels collect nuts. <laughs> and uh, I collected a, uh, a set of evidence that suggests that sperms are actually stored in, the women, uh, in a woman's womb. And that puts everything back to the drawing board because if sperms can be stored for around 10 days, which I think is the case, then uh, clearly a woman can be fertile for much longer than we thought because keratus 10 days before ovulation can still lead to fertilization. So this is probably the most re revolutionary thing I suggest in the book. Talk a little bit about how we have come to understand this, how we've come to know this, and what are some of the fundamental differences and some of the fundamental conflicts that, that even still exist between the medical community on one hand and evolutionary biology on the other? 
Yes, it's really very interesting because there is a growing field now called Darwinian medicine, which is explicitly aimed at bringing evolutionary thinking into medicine. Uh, there's always been a pretty strong connection because anthropology actually drew, grew out of medicine. It grew out of people who did human anatomy. So anthropology has always had a fairly strong link with the medical community. But uh, the medical community has its own ideas, and I, I think even now does not uh, reflect enough about our evolutionary history because we have millions of years of evolution behind us and as a biologist I'm convinced we need to understand that in order to understand fundamental processes in uh, human evolution so uh, uh, a, a broad comparative aspect which is what I provide I think can give us uh, interesting new leads to what's going on. It also arguably can give us new leads and new insights, even in terms of how to cure various diseases. Yes, I, I think this is uh, the area of most concern for me because we essentially have an epidemic of reproductive cancers on our hands for both women and men. Uh, on the one hand, uh, breast cancer uh, has reached uh, huge levels in, in industrialized societies. It's uh, more than 30 times more prevalent in the United States, for example, than it is in hunting and gathering populations living under relatively natural conditions. So uh, we have an epidemic of uh, breast cancer. And for men, there is an epidemic of testis cancer, which has uh, increased fairly dramatically um, over the last 50 years or so. And uh, uh, that goes along with developmental problems. The, uh, in primates, generally, the testes descend into a scrotum outside the body, and humans are like that. So uh, a newborn boy has his testes down in the scrotum, but uh, sometimes the testes don't descend as they should do, and this is called cryptorchidism, where uh, both testes are still in the abdomen at birth. And often that corrects itself, but uh, sometimes operations are needed, and the frequency of retained testes or cryptorchidism is also increasing fairly dramatically along with testis cancer. The two things seem to be linked because they're increasing in tandem. One of the other areas where you provide some new information, or really counter to what conventional wisdom had been, is in this whole area of monogamy versus promiscuity. Yes, uh, as I say, I think the most revolutionary uh, claim that I make in the book is, is that we have to rethink what goes on in, in a woman's cycle, and uh, that's really the most striking thing I would mention. But there are other areas in, in which a comparative approach has thrown new light on what goes on. Uh, I think the key to this is evolutionary thinking, and I'd like to take the example of breastfeeding. Because uh, culture has had such a deep influence on everything we do, it's difficult to know what is biologically appropriate and what isn't. I mean, we clearly have biological adaptations, and our bodies have expectations uh, built into them. And for a woman, uh, one key question is how long should she breastfeed her baby? 
And I've taken different lines of uh, comparative evidence. For example, you could look at primates generally, and there is a pretty tight relationship between body size and uh, weaning age at the time that suckling finishes across primates. So you have this fairly standard relationship, and we can predict from that line uh, what our, our breastfeeding period should be like and uh, we can look at archaeological evidence. We can uh, tell from human skeletons, from isotopes. We can tell when babies were weaned. And the bottom line is that all of these different lines of evidence point to the conclusion that the natural period of breastfeeding for women would be at least three years. Uh, I, I'm convinced that that would be the minimum, and I, it would probably be longer than that, but I, I'm being conservative that, uh, that we are biologically programmed uh, for our babies to be suckled at least three years. Even though evolutionary biology moves at such a slow pace, what do we know about the way things have changed in, in all of these areas? between looking at primates and looking at what we're doing, how we do it, so to speak, now? That's a very good point, and whenever I make presentations on this, few people would like to know what might happen in the future, and so a key part of that is, is asking what evolutionary changes have occurred relatively recently. And some people uh, believe that evolution has more or less stopped for humans. Uh, Sir David Attenborough in England recently uh, made a claim that evolution has essentially stopped because of everything we have done to intervene. But I think that's overdoing things. They are, in fact, I mean, a good example is disease. Clearly, our bodies are continuing to evolve to cope with new diseases and are. Uh, our immune system uh, can respond to that both in the short term by adaptation in the individual and over the long term by evolution. So over the uh, recent hundreds of years, there have been evolutionary trends in our response to diseases. As far as reproduction is concerned, the time scale is, is, is pretty long in many cases. Uh, uh, but there was a recent speculation that in the future our brains would get bigger uh, and many people have suggested this idea that that's the way evolution would take us but I see a lot of problems with that uh, one of them being that birth is very challenging in humans and uh, there is uh, unless that problem can be solved in some way by evolution then uh, I can't see any uh, any capacity for us to increase our brains because uh, we're already pushing things pretty much to the limit. And you talk about that, this difference between natural childbirth and C-sections and the increasing number of C-sections because of exactly what you're talking about. Yes, this is an example where, unfortunately, a negative kind of evolution can take place, uh, which is the increasing frequency of cesarean sections. For example, over a period of about 50 years, the frequency of cesareans in the United States has increased to five, from 5% to about a third of the population. So the present situation in the United States is that one in, th one in three babies are born by cesarean section. And uh, if you look at a map of the world and look at frequencies of C-sections, in Asia, the uh, 
the levels are even higher, uh, around 50% in some cases. So one in two babies is being born by cesarean section. The reason uh, seems to be in Asia uh, the cultural notion of propitious birthdays. There are particular dates on which it is good to be born. And so apparently there's quite a bit of pressure on uh, physicians in, in, in various parts of Asia to do C-sections so that a baby will be born on a date that's considered lucky. Uh, and just recently, I was completely amazed by this, apparently a number of private clinics in South Africa have cesarean rates approaching 80%. That's four out of five births being uh, taking place by cesarean section. Uh, and so this trend I find completely worrying because uh, if we don't get it under control uh, and limit cesareans to what is medically necessary, then we could end up in a situation where uh, it will be almost obligatory for a woman to have cesarean section because uh, over time evolutionary change will, will adapt to, to uh, surgeons intervening in birth. In some ways, it seems that would make us unique to any, not in a good way necessarily, but unique to any other species in terms of birth taking place through medical intervention. In fact, it's not unique. In domestic dogs, uh, there are increasing levels of cesarean section across the board, but uh, there's a group of broad-headed dogs, the, the bulldogs and the bull masters, um, and levels uh, of cesarean section for those breeds of dogs are now above 80% in the UK, for example. So uh, four out of five of those dogs have to go to the vet to uh, to have birth. So uh, domestic dogs actually illustrate what could happen to us if we're not careful. Talk a little bit about the impact of things like in vitro fertilization and, and the various other scientific methods that are being used in terms of fostering birth and what impact that's having within the evolutionary chain. This is another interesting area where evolution may be taking place. In fact, in the last chapter of my book, I look at uh, applications of our knowledge and it's a two-sided coin. We can use our knowledge either to limit births, to control population, or to help couples who have fertility problems. And apparently, uh, at present, there are over 2 million women in the United States who suffer from infertility problems. So this is, this is a, a big sector of the population. And more and more sophisticated techniques uh, are being used to try to help people like that. And in vitro fertilization is a, a good example of that. Uh, it's increased spectacularly uh, to, I think, over 4 million births by IVF uh, uh, up to date. So uh, this is a, a really prevalent technique where an egg is... is uh, collected from a woman and then uh, fertilized uh, in a test tube, in vitro means in the glass, so um, uh, it's done in a test tube essentially. And uh, then the fertilized egg is, is transferred uh, to the woman's womb. And that in itself 
may cause certain problems because when we intervene like that, we're circumventing normal natural selection. So uh, we're intervening to to improve fertility in cases where under normal circumstances uh, a woman wouldn't get pregnant. Uh, but perhaps one of the most alarming things is, is what is called uh, intracytoplasmic uh, sperm injection. And with that technique, a single sperm is injected directly into an egg to get a fertilized egg. And that bypasses all the filtering mechanisms in uh, a woman's tried. I, I showed, tried to show in my book that uh, it's actually quite an obstacle race uh, for the sperm to actually get up and fertilize an egg. And uh, that is all bypassed if we take a sperm and inject it uh, directly into an egg. Now, uh, the experts who do this are pretty careful to try to exclude abnormalities in that case, but uh, the bottom line is that uh, IVF and associated techniques generally are associated with something like a doubling of problems with pregnancy ending in fetal deformity and so forth. So there is a risk. I don't want to overemphasize this because a lot of people are dependent on this technique. It's not a huge risk, but it is significantly higher than with a natural birth. Going along with IVF, of course, on the other side is all this, this male potency medication that we see advertised all the time. And the combination of these two things resulting in childbirth happening at a much later age. And what might be the evolutionary consequence of that? That's another uh, interesting point where we're again intervening to some extent inadvertently because... Women are tending to have babies later and later in life uh, because if a woman wants to have a successful career, uh, she has to keep at it uh, early on. And uh, this is an awful choice for a woman to have to make. And there's lots of evidence that the optimal time to have a baby, that is the, the, the maximum likelihood of getting pregnant in the first place and, and then having a positive outcome is around 20 years of age. So uh, in physiological terms, that is the ideal time for a woman to have a baby before that and after that uh, things are less, less successful. So after a woman has reached 20, 21 years of age, uh, things become less successful with increasing age. and uh, So first of all, because more women are delaying having babies, and uh, secondly, because of interventions to actually encourage fertility later in life, uh, this is pushing pregnancy into a less successful zone of, of the age curve. The other thing that goes along with that is that while we're involved in all of these interventions that you've been talking about, in dealing with the potential problems on the other side, we're getting much better with respect to things like neonatal care and neonatal ICUs and, and solving some of these problems, and that has impact as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really quite remarkable how successful medical science has been in helping premature babies to survive because initially that was uh, a huge problem if a baby were born uh, 
more than a few weeks before the due date, then usually there would be a, a very small chance of survival. And in fact, uh, medical science has essentially pushed the survival back to mid-pregnancy. So uh, a baby can be born uh, just over halfway through pregnancy and still survive thanks to medical intervention. So that's a huge positive point is that we can save the lives of, of very early babies now. The downside to this is that uh, premature babies always have problems compared to babies that are born in a term, and these problems can continue into adult life. So if you're born prematurely, you start off with a handicap. And so uh, where we should really be focusing our efforts is preventing babies from being premature in the first place uh, because the more we can achieve there, um, the less problems uh, those people will have when they grow up. So we, we, we need to shift our emphasis from uh, working really hard to help very early ba premature babies to survive to... Uh, finding ways of reducing the chances that a baby will be born prematurely in the first place. To the extent that all of the things we've been talking about in the past few minutes are things that really involve modern science and technology and all that goes along with it, do we learn anything from looking at primates and looking at evolution? Do we learn things that are going to help us deal with these potential scientifically created problems? Yes, certainly. I, I mean, the whole point of my book was to try to draw upon my knowledge of uh, comparative science across the primates to, to, to see what practical lessons can be drawn for humans. And the example I would take is, is breastfeeding because, uh, in fact, if you look across all primates, the composition of the milk directly tells you how the mother behaves with the baby. Primates are adapted for suckling on demand, so it's the baby that decides when it wants to be fed. Uh, in many other mammals, like rats and mice, for example, the babies are suckled on schedule. It's the mother who determines the, uh, the suckling of uh, babies. She decides when she's going to suckle them, and it's on a fairly rigid uh, schedule in many species. So, uh, there's a big difference then between suckling on schedule like that and suckling on demand. And uh, in species that suckle on demand, like all primates, the milk is very dilute. It's relatively high in sugar and, and pretty low in fat and protein. And so you can look at that signature of milk composition and directly say, this is a mother that uh, suckles her baby on demand uh, at relatively short intervals. And when we look at the composition of human milk, it has that exact same signature. So biologically, we are still adapted for suckling on demand. And that, to me, is a great example of where science points the way because... Until quite recently, there were many physicians, I don't know why, but they decided that women should suckle on rigid, rigid schedules and that they should put the baby in a separate bedroom uh, and, uh, and decide uh, when to feed the baby, uh, maybe just three times a day. And 
I don't know how this arose because there's no basis in science for that that uh, directive, but that's what physicians were telling women up until a few decades ago. So uh, science here tells us that uh, women are adapted for close contact with their babies and for suffering on demand, and that is something that's been there in the primates for 80 million years. I mean, this is deeply embedded in the evolutionary history of primates. And in that respect, women are just like any other primate. Uh, one thing I want to emphasize here is that uh, by looking at uh, other primates and other mammals, I can recognize general principles. And the, these tell us uh, what the biological adaptations for women are likely to be. But uh, I'm not suggesting that women have to go back to uh, a hunting and gathering existence. <laughs> My point is that as scientists, we need to know how the system is constructed. And then if we have to use artificial milks, as is often the case, uh, we can get it right. Instead of using some modified form of cow's milk, what we need is, is a formula that is, is beautifully adapted to our needs. In the little bit of time we have left, talk a little bit about raising children, what we learn from, from biological evolution that is sometimes consistent, sometimes inconsistent with, with the overprotective way in which we, we are raising children today. Yes. You know, this is something that I, I don't really consider much in the book. Uh, I'm hoping to write a sequel where I can cover all the things I had to leave out, but uh, but the thing is, uh, first of all, there is a unique feature in humans compared to other primates, uh, which is childhood. Uh, normally, you would have a period of infancy, and then you would be uh, straight into a juvenile period, and then into adulthood. So, typically, primates have just those three phases, infancy, juvenile period, and adulthood. And, and at the end of infancy, which lasts a year in humans, we, we've added a two-year period uh, of childhood, so um, that uh, increases the dependency of human children, babies, on, on uh, uh, being reared by the family group, and uh, that is a, a unique development. You, by working out through the fossil record, you can uh, see that this probably started emerging about two years two million years ago, and that it has gradually uh, extended to become the two-year period that we, we now have for childhood. And one of the keys to this is the evolution of the brain, because the pelvis constrains the size of the baby's head at birth. Uh, we have had to postpone a lot of brain growth to after birth. The um, there's a, a period of development of the brain in the womb. And normally in primates, the uh, rate of brain growth slows down uh, fairly obviously at birth. In humans, we continue to grow brains at the same speed as in the womb for a year after birth. And it's only a year after birth that we switch to the slower growth pattern that is typical after birth for other primates. So that is a this one-year period has been built into uh, our development. So the first year of life, babies actually have a, an immature brain compared to other primates. And on the one hand, this makes them more vulnerable, but on the other hand, it makes them more open and flexible to learning from the environment. 
Robert Martin, the book is How We Do It, The Evolution and Future of Human Reproduction. It's just out from Basic Books. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Your questions were, were bang on the nail. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 